This friend of mine who committed suicide was really one of the most influential men in British business, certainly that I knew of, right? And what struck me, and this is something that strikes me as well, being in, in technology, is the rules around what you can and can't say in business are so predetermined. You're not allowed to overstep this mark for fear of being cut down. Just don't do the things that you feel society you maybe need to do. And actually, when you start talking about it, other people go, fuck, actually, I can be myself as well. And it's like, oh, God. This episode was actually recorded last year before the pandemic hit in London with 200 people in a live audience hearing our conversation about mental health and entrepreneurship. Those were the days, huh? It was recorded on World Mental Health Day to highlight some of the staggering facts that we're actually going to cover in this episode. Now, as someone who suffered from a mix of mental health problems, including depression that was caused by the death of my father, uh, burnout caused by believing too much in hustle culture, to be honest, uh, chronic anxiety and insomnia from not prioritizing my diet for a healthy brain. And, you know, when I was growing up, even bulimia from just growing up fat, I think it's really important as leaders to come out and talk openly about these experiences so others can too and you know by the way it's taken me years to get comfortable with saying any of those words now if you're on the journey building a dream listening to this episode and recognizing some of the things that we talk about please remember to be kind to yourself and know that you're not alone and you can reach out to us here at secret leaders on instagram too and we'll do our very best to get back to you and point you in the direction of some really helpful literature now to today's Fantastic guests, Damien and Mills. So, uh, firstly, thanks everyone for coming. We've got two amazing guests this evening, um, and we are going to talk about um, some very real experiences. So, as we know, mental health disorders are the global epidemic of our times, and according to the World Health Organization, with instances of anxiety, depression, suicide rates climbing globally, it's clear that we're actually in somewhat of a state of emergency. In entrepreneurship, the numbers are especially bleak. I am one of the 582 million people who have dedicated their lives to entrepreneurship, like many of you. And we, wake up, we make up about 8% of the population in total. In the words of the iconic Steve Jobs, the people who are crazy enough to think they can change the world are the ones who actually do. But of course, the key word there is crazy enough. In the USA, startups account for 43% of jobs annually. It's no underestimating, therefore, their importance on the global economy, but startup founders are estimated to be twice as likely to suffer from depression, six times more likely to suffer from ADHD, three times more likely to suffer from substance abuse, ten times more likely to suffer from bipolar disorder, twice as likely to have a psychiatric hospitalization, and twice as likely to have suicidal thoughts in the general public. So it's clear we need a bit of a plan to remedy this, which starts, in my opinion, at destigmatizing the whole thing. We plan to do our very best tonight to shine a light on the seriousness and severity of the issues without losing touch of some of the lighter things. Obviously, for some of you that have uh, listened to the podcast before, you'll know that I can't help myself but make incredibly inappropriate jokes at terrible times. So hopefully I'll pick the right moments throughout the evening um, and, uh, and fine tune uh, the moments where it feels right. Um, now, the first guest this evening needs no introduction, however, I'm going to do it anyway. Uh, his name is Damien Bradfield. He is the co-founder of WeTransfer, which I'm sure many of you have used before. Damien, can you join us and tell us what's one thing you really love about yourself? And welcome to the stage, Damien. <laughs> So 
So there's these two concepts, hedgehogs and foxes. And what I thought you needed to be to be a great writer or to be able to do something is to be a specialist. And a specialist is the hedgehog. He can basically only do one thing. And when there's danger or something, he rolls into a ball and he can protect himself. But over time, a number of people I spoke to, and I finished a book recently, and in talking to dozens and dozens of people, what was really clear is that I think the future is in being a fox, in being the generalist, and somebody that can adapt and can move quite quickly and is able to sort of adapt to his environment. And I think the thing that I'm quite good at is being a fox. We've moved around all over the place. My family lives in multiple different places. And uh, you know, I always used to think, and this is a very British thing, that in Britain, I think, well, as you well know, as we're going through all this bullshit with Brexit, there is a certain amount of arrogance in this country that it's still great, and it's this amazing empire, and it's this power that's going to you know, be able to stand on its own two feet and can take on everybody else. Um, and I think what I've learned in moving around is that there's no such thing really as you know, better. There's just different. And whether you live in LA or whether you live in Amsterdam, whether you live in London, I think they all have pros and cons, and that's how we should treat life. I think you just need to see things as being different and take out the best of all the places or things, experiences you gather. And I think not only me, but my family have become quite good at being that generalist. OK, so as a founder of WeTransfer... You were going to say we work then. No, I was definitely not. <laughs> it's definitely not. Um... Talk about boo-boos. <laughs> I, I did the BBC the other day, and uh, the, the broadcast of the BBC tweeted, said, I have Damien Bradford coming on, the co-founder of WeWork, <laughs> to talk about IPOs. I'm like... <laughs> So I tweeted back saying, just to be clear, I'm not the co-founder of WeWork, I'm the co-founder of WeTransfer, and happy to talk about IPOs, and happy to talk about Brexit, but I'm responsible for neither. <laughs> so WeTransfer, just to be clear. Yeah, WeTransfer, to be clear. Um, so, uh, you know, like massive company, runaway success, obviously not, not necessarily immediately, but now used by millions of people, something like a billion files shared every month, every month like ridiculous. Um, so I'm going to just assume wasn't always like that. So you started the company off in Amsterdam. Can you take us back a few years and just give us an idea, like roll through the history uh, quickly? You've got five minutes to sort of explain the nice, quick history of don't worry, we transfer, not we work. So yeah. your your topic of specialty preferred. This could be the last ever meeting in we work. So two thousand tough crowd. <laughs> 2009, we started the company in Amsterdam. Um, basically, had four partners, or four of us in total. Um, we transfer was sort of a side project for, for most of us um, because we were bootstrapped in Holland. It was exceptionally difficult to raise money. Most of the offers we were getting uh, when we were trying to raise money was like giving away 20% of the company for 200,000 euros. And we worked in consultancy on the side, design consultancy, and we could earn that just doing a big project for Nike or something. So we we scrapped it for years. We had one thing that differentiated us, which was basically simplicity. So we had no sign-up, and we had these beautiful ads in the background that, that everybody loved, except for VCs. So no one thought that there was a business model in what we were doing in the, in the, in the money world. Um, nobody really could see how we were going to be able to turn this into a business. And to be honest, we doubted it too. So we had other companies on the side, um, all of which basically failed. And we, we transferred just sort of suddenly grew on, on the side from 200,000 users to a million to 10 million, and it, and it continued to grow. So in 2015, we basically sold and got rid of everything else we had and just said, we're going to focus on, on one thing. Um, still a relatively small company, just 50 people. But um, the one thing, again, that I think is cool from 2015 onwards is that we said we'd always given away media to support the arts or charities or good causes, whatever. 
and we were going to make a commitment that 30% of all the advertising that we had, we would give away to support causes or um, projects that we believed in. And that's still today the case. So, you know, we have 7 billion impressions, something like that, that we give away every year to support photographers, musicians. Um, we have a platform called We Present Now, which is a long-form storytelling content platform. We have an app called Collect, a drawing app called Paste, Paper, and a presentation tool called, called Paste. Um, and actually, as of today, we, if you sign up for a WeTransfer Pro account, um, you will also get a year's worth of uh, headspace because it's World Mental Health Month. Um, and it's that sort of stuff that I think is the interesting part about WeTransfer today. It's up until 2015, no one was interested in lean data. It was all about big data, collecting, harassing, stalking, whatever. And today, it's very much about how you behave, what you do with the information you have, and how you're going to be a bit more responsible. And I think it's, that's quite an exciting time. And we were fortunate that we were on the right side of that line. You know, I mean, we're in a building that represents everything that's wrong about tech. <laughs> Good thing they're not really listening. Yeah. Um, OK, so uh, before we bring Mills on stage as well, um, because you're the campaigning type, uh, you've got a day that you've created that's coming up on Saturday. Can you please share with everyone a little Thanks. bit about that? Yeah, so um, we have a concept called Empty Day. It's um, this Saturday. It's basically a day of no social media, so all we're asking people to do, and it's not that there's a charity and there's no money behind it and there's no real founders. It's basically an initiative that says, wouldn't it be nice if you could wake up and not have FOMO, that you didn't have to check your phone because all of your friends around you were basically not posting anything? And it just organized something in real life. A picnic. A, a picnic. Hilarious. <laughs> uh, you know, go to the he has been living in LA. Yeah. So that, that was practical. But go yeah, go not, to the cinema, picnic. but just don't take your phone with you. And if you have to because you have kids, just turn data off. And I think, you know, for one day, it's, it, it would be fantastic if you didn't have that feeling of the anxiety that I think is one of the biggest causes of... Uh, a lot of the issues that we're suffering from today in um, depression and suicide and stuff. So this Saturday, empty day. If you're trying to grow your startup and you're dealing with companies outside of the UK, you're probably going to need ISO 27001 at some point. It's not the sexiest acronym, but it's basically the global standard for proving your security practices are up to scratch, like how you handle customer data. The same goes with SOC 2. You're going to need it if you're a SaaS company. But achieving these security frameworks can be very tedious and very costly. This is where our partner Vanta comes in. Vanta automates up to 90% of the work for certifications like ISO 27001, SOC 2, GDPR, HIPAA, and more getting you audit ready in weeks instead of months and saving you up to 85% of the cost. And as a special offer, our listeners get 20% off Vanta. Just head to vanta.com slash secret leaders. That's vanta.com slash secret leaders for 20% off. There's a link in the description. Look, you know I'm fascinated by AI. But until the machines take over, there's only one thing that's going to determine your company's fortunes. People. This isn't some kind of hollow point to make me look good. If you speak privately to any successful entrepreneur, they'll confirm it's true. So, if you're a leader of a growing business, then you should check out Personio. It brings together all the important HR things like hiring, onboarding, payroll data, performance reviews, and so on. 
You don't want loads of employees sending you emails asking for time off. You want to be able to see things objectively, like it's taking you too long to hire. You want to do performance reviews well, having clear goals for people that are logged in a centralized system. And you want to do all these things in one simple tool without having to become an HR expert. All of this is possible with Personio. Check it out at personio.com forward slash secret leaders. That's personio.com forward slash secret leaders. There's a link in the show notes. Can I get you to step aside? Come on, Mills. Can we get Mills up <laughs> on the stage, please? Big round of yeah, absolutely. Now can I look up What to you? is that? That's like a little table. <laughs> Hi, team. Hello, the music. Hi, Mills. Um, so, just just a couple of things um, about Mills. It's just for um, your legs. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, so awkward, he can show off his legs. Uh, number one, Mills always wears shorts. So, there's a hundred percent of the days. Like ever, yeah. is always wearing shorts, which is why I wanted to make sure that we did have a nice little foot. I like it. Yeah, so nice. they're perfectly on show for the evening. I think it's it's perfect. Um, <laughs> very good. Yeah, um, Mills, have you got an obscure reference for us, like some sort of story? If I ask you to describe your favourite thing about yourself, uh, <clears throat> that wasn't the question you told me to think about. No, it's but, not. Um, that's, <laughs> that's different. It's funny that that hedgehog story that I, I actually blotted out of my head because my our sort of non-execs tried to get us to sort of think about foxes and hedgehogs. I never understood the analogy because he wanted me to be a hedgehog, but I'd never seen a hedgehog, so... Because I think they all died, so they hadn't done very well. Um, I was going to say, like, because you told me to no, say... No, no, totally, please. Do, do tell us what is, what is a quality that you admire and respect about yourself. Uh, I don't even know if it's a quality, but I found out recently that one of the reasons, I mean, that sort of my mind has somewhat exploded over the last few years is I finally, I finally find out found out what one of the reasons is. And I, um, I was, uh, I can't even think of the word now, basically I've got ADHD, which explains an awful lot if, if you knew me. Uh, and um, that's been really helpful for me uh, to sort of unpack the last 15 years of building a business and understanding uh, the qualities associated with something like that. I do see it as a superpower. I'm very proud of it. Yeah. And now I can take loads of medication. Finally, I can take loads of drugs where I'm allowed to take them. <laughs> uh, my wife doesn't have a go at me. It's perfect. She actually has a go at me, but I don't take them. It's brilliant. <laughs> okay, so um, Mills, Mills for, for those that don't know, um, you know, has a real name. We don't use it. It's a little bit like Madonna or Maradona or just Mills. Um, and uh, you know, you kind of knocked it out of the park with your first attempt. So Mills is the co-founder of a company called Us Two. Um, they are uh, well. If you've ever been to Shoreditch, they're well known for basically occupying the T building, um, and you're probably their finest asset in there. I'm not um, sure. Well, I would I would say so. Oh yes. Um, and uh, like, apart from being one of the best design and production studios in the world, uh, they also create their own smash hit game. So uh, they had a runaway success a few years ago with Monument Valley, which became one of the most popular games ever on the iPhone. Uh, you can obviously tell us more of the details of that. I don't want to get the numbers wrong. Uh, last time I checked, it was 40 million downloads, but is it I around don't that? Know. I know. So many, I just don't know. Uh, <laughs> not 40 million paid, by the way, unfortunately. Um, <laughs> no, it's been, it's been brilliant. It's been a, a wonderful journey. I mean, I don't want to waste your time talking about the company, but, you know, it's been a fantastic... It's been fantastic 15 years. I was very lucky enough to, to, to start a business with my best mate, um, and for me, that's been the, the reason that I've been able to... To get through it, we we got pretty big at one point, about four hundred people across the world, um, and yeah, it's been it's been in, in sort of untangled the last few years. My own headspace, um, dealing with you know 
downs, not just ups. Anyone, I realised anyone can build a business when it's going up, 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 and that I was very good at doing that. But once shit hit the fan about three or four years ago, when the sort of world changed and our offering needs to change, I think you know that's when you really learn about whether you are able to sort of see see it through. And yeah. Well, before we do yeah. get into that, yep. um, you've obviously had quite a lot of highs. Yeah. Uh, so I mean, just from following you on social media over the years, um, you know, one of the ones that I saw, like, it's just easy to talk about the highs. You see them as they come on social media, but there was a really um, well-publicised experience a couple of years ago when Tim Cook came to um, the UK, so obviously the CEO of Apple, and made a big deal about visiting you guys and had all these photos in the press about visiting you because of Monument Valley. Were there any other, like, that's like a very public high, so to speak, but, you know, internally, what are some of the other highs you've experienced over the last 15 years that you notably uh, remember most? Well, I mean, so... <clears throat> Not dissimilar to what Damien was saying, that we had, we had built a sort of client service agency and used the profits from that to allow us to take big risks that eventually we made Monument Valley. That was a big, big success. But I think, actually, um, the success that I've often been very proud of, which isn't necessarily one you think it was, was, you know, we had to make redundancies a while back. And I, I always remember growing up thinking that that would be total failure to, have to, to be in a position to do that. And in some ways, there is failure around that. But... Um, you know, I think we, me and my co-founder, realised that you know, you, the, that it is a company. We refer to it as a family, a family company. It has sort of the ideals of family and company, or the best of both. So I think when we actually um, started getting more commercial and, and realising that saying no is is a is a harder thing to do, being a leader than saying yes, then I, I was proud that we actually stepped up. Yeah. Okay. So getting on to, uh, I guess, our first big question of the evening, um, Emil's you know, seeing as you're in your stride, I'll start with you, if I may. Um, <laughs> when did you first become aware of your own mental health disorders? You know, what, what were they? How did they manifest? Um, and how do they manifest for people around you? Yeah, uh, I'll, be, I'll try to be quick. Um, I, I don't think I was aware, per se. I mean, I spent 15 years building what my wife has said was my first love. It was a company that I was lucky enough to build my best mate, and I, I put everything into it, and... Um, I've learned recently that, you know, that was at the detriment to, my, to, to our relationship and to the kids that I have. I have an 11-year-old and 8-year-old. You know, my, my love was to try to, to build something that I thought was extremely special. And looking back now, it's because I was, as a growing up, I was dyslexic. I wasn't aware of the ADHD at the time. And I think, you know, if I sort of, sort of talk through with therapists now, there was this sort of underlying need to prove something to myself and to the world. That was my drive. Um, Oh, my God, I've forgotten that. This is the problem with the ADHD, by the way. Um, <laughs> what, was, what was the question? No, five, no, yeah, so, so, five years ago, so I... This is like coaching. I just shut up and he remembers it. It's so, amazing. imagine... No, so, all I, I spend my entire life... All I think about is I do 24 hours a day and I really, really enjoy it. And I'm lucky enough to be in a lifestyle world in many ways that I really enjoy the work I was doing, the design that we were doing. And we were doing extremely well at the time. And it was a big family, as I say. But about three or four years ago, I started... Things started to change. I think it was... If I look back now, it was after Monument Valley. I think I had put so much into to believing that that, that that success that I'd always craved was the thing that was going to solve everything. And I remember, like, a year later, thinking I'm still this craving for this thing. I don't know what it was, but there's more out there. Um, so I realised it really wasn't a sort of a company thing. And I, and I went through a couple of years without really knowing about... I don't know if it was depression, but it was, uh, it was feeling bad, really bad. And since my co-founder was, gave me time off... Um, so I think I became more and more aware of it. I stopped drinking a few years ago um, to try to, to solve stuff. Um, yeah, look, I, 
I've come to realize now that you know everyone has some form of mental health, without a doubt. And actually, the more I talk openly about it, the more I realize that many people are in a similar situation. I think um, I'm not special in that respect. Dealing with life, dealing with being married, having kids, growing up, companies losing money—it's hard. Did you have any moments like with complete breakdowns? Yeah, I mean, I think one of the things that tested me big time was with this family concept was. In many ways, the very people I wanted to talk openly about not feeling the love for the company that I spent all my life building was the very people that worked in it. And I think you're kind of taught, maybe in those, maybe well, three or four years ago, I felt like I wasn't allowed to tell them and speak to them, my friends in the company. And I remember one day just sort of breaking down, being very upset and just sending me, maybe you shouldn't do it, but I sent an email to everyone, like all the 400 people, telling them that I wasn't uh, into the very thing that I had basically been the biggest proponent of and I needed time away. I'm very truthful, very... And, Actually, you know, that was, I think, it's the start of being able to heal because I think vulnerability, it proved to me why I always hoped that vulnerability is not a weakness at all. In fact, in many ways, in, certainly in the business that I've built, it's, it's, it's expected. Um, so that was a good start for me. And did that sort of set the tone with your colleagues? Did you find that other people were able to open up? Because you talk about starting with vulnerability. Yeah. Um, so there's no, no greater opportunity inside a company than the founder just admitting to everyone in his company that he can't cope with it. Yeah. I mean, I, I, again, this is my point point of view but I think it is I think the leaders that, that work alongside me now are, tell me that the, the messages that I send them and that's uh, about my vulnerability about my going through ADHD etc gives them permission to, um, to bring their whole selves to work so for, for our company it works um, but I guess I own it so I can probably set the rules in that yeah aspect. well exactly um, Damien when did you first become aware of any mental health disorders or I guess feelings like that no, I'm not. I don't, know what, I don't know why you're asking me. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> He's British. He's in denial. It's fine. Never happened. I mean, so we had um, my mum. My mum uh, has always suffered from depression. And uh, it was always quite a big deal in our family, but it was never labelled as such. I think in a similar vein to you only realising later that you had ADHD. I think <clears throat> my brother suffered from dyslexia, and dyslexia wasn't diagnosed, I think it was until, like, 1989 or something like that. And I remember my brother um, being diagnosed, and it being quite a big deal, but... I think to this, well, I'm sure to this very day, you know, my family is still in denial that um, my mum suffers from depression. Although she would go to bed for a week, she's just having a bad time. You know, it wasn't, it wasn't anything more than that, and we we could deal with it. So I think that was always very, very evident, and we always knew that it was very evident um, with my mum and actually my best friend. And I think um, once you actually pinpoint uh, depression, you understand what it's about. You suddenly realise you know an awful lot of people around you that are pretty similar, and. Um, I didn't realize that I, I didn't think that I suffer from depression at all. I mean, to your point, I'm not sure that I necessarily do. I just sometimes feel pretty shit. And it doesn't have to do with the weather. Yeah. <laughs> um, and the great thing about living in LA is that uh, everybody has a therapist. I know it's cliche, but they do. And what I loved about LA and my team there is, you know, you would have in your calendar, everyone has a shared calendar. So you'd see in the calendar, you know, Monday, 8 a.m., meeting with such and such, and Tuesday, blah, blah, and then Wednesday, you could see therapy, you know, lunchtime. And pretty much everyone would put it in there as much as they would do that they're going to the gym or they're going to go, um, you know, pick up the dog or something. And I was really impressed that it was just so transparent, that it was, you know, there was a very thorough understanding that um, uh, good mental health was equally as important as good physical health. Um, so I, I got myself a therapist and probably the most fucked up therapist that you could ever meet who would just say to me, okay, Damon, this is quite nice. I understand what you're saying, but you're being very British. And he'd say to me, now take the elevator down 
And I'd go, I don't understand what you mean. He goes, you see, come on, go take the elevator down. And then it would be another level of darkness underneath it. And he broke me. I mean, like, he had this amazing ability to just sort of unpeel this onion of layers of complexity. And I'd come away from it feeling absolutely fucking broken. But it was a revelation that was like, fuck, I didn't actually know that these were sitting there. I had no idea that this was... Um, well, this wasn't normal, that this wasn't, you know, what everybody had. I thought that everybody sort of went through these, you know, good days and bad days and that it, you know, you could be, you know, super, it could be a super high and a super low. And I classify myself as an ambivert because sometimes I can be super extra and not mind sitting on a stage. And other times I just want to go and sit in the corner and you can all go to hell. I mean, I don't want to talk to anybody. And that, that you know, is a spectrum that I have quite a lot. But um, 2016, uh, I met this, uh, this therapist who pretty much changed my life and... and um, got the balance for me right in terms of going to the gym and eating well and, and, um, and opening up. And very similar to Mills, what I was fascinated by was uh, as soon as I would say to somebody, oh, my God, you know, I'm thinking of this, they would go, oh, yeah, shit, me too. How about, you know, you want to grab a cup of coffee? And um, it didn't matter whether I was talking... Uh, again, I feel like I'm pitching my book all the time, but the book was quite a revelation because I talked to people like Gary Kasparov and Stephen Fry. And, of course, Stephen Fry, you know, everybody knows, has been suffering from depression for years... That's the creative spectrum, right? The creative spectrum, it's totally common and accepted that if you're in the creative field, you're going to basically be... I mean, Stephen always said when he moved to L.A., he, uh, that they said to him, oh, Stephen, you have everything. You're gay, uh, Jewish, and bipolar. You know, Hollywood has got everything for you. These are the ingredients for success. In, in business, that's just not the case. In business, I don't know many people that you know, really uh, are able to honestly, like Mills, come out and say, you know what, I'm just suffering from something and I need a bit of space. I mean, a bit of time, because I still think there's a huge you know, stigma attached to it. The same year, a friend of mine committed suicide here in London. He was exceptionally successful, a so steel magnet. Um, and I went to this funeral that um, the whole world and his wife attended, you know, the McCartneys, everybody. Um, but his kids, his kids weren't invited. Um, and his family um, released his press statement that um, he had fallen from the sixth floor of his penthouse apartment. And that's the... This is ridiculous. I mean, why, why should this be something that you would try and cover up? I think it's super important um, that, you know, we do find a way of being able to talk about it and talk about it in a way, actually, that um, isn't stigmatized or polarized or anything else. You know, if you ask me, would I want to change the way that I'm constructed and built in the way I think? 100% no. It's who I am. It's what gives me the good days and the bad days. And it's why I love Donnie Darko. And it's why I love, you know, Richard Curtis films. It gives me that spectrum that I think is... Is, a, is an asset. I wouldn't change it for the world. It's interesting because you mentioned, um, you know, going into the office and everyone in there has a therapist and it's all set up and stuff. And what strikes me with that revelation is that's your own company. Do you know what I mean? That's your own company that you're surprised that that's a setup because it's just like the cultural norm. Yeah. Um, whereas, obviously, you know, uh, the Mills approach would be uh, whether it's the cultural norm or not, it's happening in the company. So it's a super interesting thing. I remember when we first met um, how much you were talking about how your therapist was the reason why LA was so important to your experience in entrepreneurship. Um, and I think, you know, this is a, a growing area in the UK of people feeling comfortable about talking about it. But, I mean, broadly speaking, obviously, we're quite an awkward group. Yeah. Um, you know, I think like... the Victorians have a lot to answer for still, right? I mean, I, think, I, I blame Victorians for everything, that we, 
you know, the reason that we drink so much here, the reason that, you know, the, the office party is still such a thing is because it's that moment where you're allowed to be whoever you want to be. Mm. You know, in L.A., you can be anybody tomorrow. It doesn't matter. You don't have to have an office party. The weirder, the better. <laughs> um, but, in, but, in, but here in the U.K., it's, it's very... And I'm very traditional. Right? I come from a very traditional family. Um, you, know, I, you know, I don't wear shorts. I haven't, got, <laughs> I haven't got good Alexis meals, but I mean, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm super traditional when it comes to this sort of thing. So for me, it was quite a big leap to, to do this. And even, you know, even if, if it's our own company, I think um, it so much depends on the people you surround yourself with and the partners that you have. You know, and again, you know, I would say the partners I had were, again, pretty traditional and weren't in that headspace to be able to, you know, deal with these things and look at it from a very open-minded perspective, mm. as, as you had. And I guess, uh, Mills, with you, do you feel like your experience with mental health um, and sharing it in the companies had uh, detrimental experiences? Can you think of examples where uh, you being as real as it has has actually um, given you pause for thought about doing it again? I remember when I first sent the, 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 the initial email many years ago, and um, I remember one of our leaders came out to me and sort of saying that he'd had a chat with his wife and sort of suggested that they wouldn't have done that, that they... they well, they... They questioned whether or not that was the right thing to do. Um, it's a good question. I mean, it was a risk in many ways. You know, I guess I, I think I was at a low point, such a low point that I felt that, well, okay, the worst is they'll all leave, fine. That solved, the deal, that solved it for me. Uh, or they stay, and then I've got to keep going. They stayed, <laughs> thankfully. Um, Did you talk to your co-founder about it before sending it? Yeah, I mean, I think two people that have been extremely um, supportive of me the entire time are both my wife um, of 22 years and my work husband sings for 32 years. So I think those two have had to deal with most of it. And I think behind the scenes, they were probably doing a lot more work than I was aware of in terms of looking after me. I, I, I tend to be the sort of within the, the company that, that we're part of, the, the group, sorry, um, you know, I'm the one that just speaks first, again, the ADHD, and then thinks about what are after. So I think the problem I had is that I was starting to feel more and more sort of withdrawn because I just didn't know what was going on. Again, to Damon's fault, I had kind of perceived everything you'd want, um, but yet I just didn't feel good. You know, I, I, thought, I, I stopped drinking for a year and a half. You know, you try, I think you try everything. I tried, I was vegan for two or three minutes. I was, <laughs> I, I, you know, I, went, I, I accomplished a 100-mile ultra run. Um, I did it all, you know... Sorry, just to be clear, he did a 100-mile ultra run, which I followed the whole thing on Instagram stories, and every mile was on his stories. Until mile 100, it was ridiculous. I was in... I would be collapsing after three or four miles to still be storying it at 100 miles. It was unbelievable. Oh, you've got to keep the fans happy. Went on for but, 24 uh, hours. <laughs> it was 24 hours of Instagram storying a ride. It was 22, my ad. 22, 22. sorry. <laughs> but I think through that whole process, you know, I was, I was looking back now, I was trying to do everything I can to kind of not really... I was trying to deal... I was trying to sort of... I was doing everything right, but everything wrong. It was a journey of progression. Eventually, that lands on sort of seeing a therapist. I'd seen one many years before, and it didn't really work with me. I started to... I think I, I found a therapist just around the corner in Bank that, that I just really gelled with, and I think I was at the right time to be able to start talking about lots of things, including relationship, having kids. Um, not, you know, my, the main reason I'd gone to the therapist was actually because I felt like I'd lost my drive. The, the only thing that I felt like I had to give to us, too, had always been this relentless, we need to do more. And it was more goodness rather than more growth. And then I didn't have it anymore. Um, but then you just have to work through this stuff, I think, and, you know, talk very openly about it with the people around you. And I'm very lucky that I have a, a culture whereby people understand that it's OK to talk, bring your real self to work. I don't really want to pretend. There's no point. I've got a better thing to do. Yeah, but, I mean, that's, li that's like exactly by design. So I guess for Damien, the question is, so when um, 
you know, you spent a couple of years setting up the American office for WeTransfer. Yeah, if you could just stay there. Yeah, stay. Um, no, he says he spent a couple of years, the last couple of years, going to um, LA to set up the office, but like the HQ is in Amsterdam. So, how were you, um, like, what was the company culture like around this stuff before you went? How did you present, uh, I guess, what the company culture should be around mental health and how to talk about these things before you went to LA and now that you've come back after it? I mean, Holland is. Um... Holland's quite a traditional place too, right? It has, it has a perception of being an incredibly liberal place because of prostitution and drugs. The, the truth is that the Dutch are incredibly frugal and Calvinistic and intelligent when it comes to tax. So prostitution and tax is only really legal. Um, prostitution and drugs are only really legal because of tax. So it's not, it's not as liberal, I think, as everybody, everybody makes out. So the honest answer is that um, you know, I would say that the company is still getting its head around, you know, how to how to deal with this and how to deal with it in a way that can be can be sort of managed. Um, because, like a lot of companies, I think there's some fear that if you open up the floodgates, everybody's got some sort of mental health issue. You know, everybody's got something, and they're going to need some time off for this, and they're going to need special attention for that. And I think that's you know, I think that's a very common problem that a lot of companies would be facing. Is if if we acknowledge this. If we take it on, you know, where, you know, where does this beast go? And how do we manage to keep it in check? Um, in LA, that's just not the case. I mean, it's, there would definitely be some corporate cultures in LA that you know, are, not very, um, are not very forward thinking. But I think in general, in the creative sector again, and LA you know, has a bit more of a creative bent than a lot of other American cities, it's, it's just very commonplace to, to discuss it, I think, which is, which is quite cool. Do you get a lot of um, anxiety or... or um, concern uh, actually accepting to go to events in, in the future, things you're not really sure, you don't know how you're going to feel that day? I guess the question is obviously to both of you. But, yeah, you know. I, I mean, I definitely do. I, I think, um, I mean, the only reason I'm doing this really is to sort of practice how I can converse it, about it with my kids. Mm. I mean, no offence, but I don't really give a shit about you guys. <laughs> <laughs> but my kids, I really do. And I think, you know, this is a lot of the traits that we have, you know, a lot of, a lot of the things that I get anxious about, I can see it in my kids. You know, I... I don't know if any of you get this, but you know, I'm, I'm always, I, I don't know, I hate fucking waiting in airports. So if I know my flight is at 6.15, I'm there at 5.45, and I'm probably the guy running to the gate, because I think any time that's just sitting down in, in an airport is just wasted time. I notice only after a long, you know, I'm 42, right? And I think only about at the age of 40 that my mouth is always dry when I'm getting to near the airport. And then I would my, ask my therapist, and he said, it's pure anxiety. I mean. That's one of the, the easiest signals. Your body is basically saying you're, you know, you're, you're, you're getting dehydrated because you're anxious. I had no idea, but I can see it so clearly in my son that when we're going traveling, I'm in control. So I am late, so he, by nature, is late with me. And it makes him so anxious that I had to consciously sit there and think, OK, shit, this is not, not cool, is it? It's not fair. Well, we know one of the greatest um, you know, instigators of, of depression is lack of control. You know, with a lot of testing in the civil service in the UK um, was based around, you know, how, how much depression is, is seen in top management. There was a belief that top management would be super stressed because of the pressure and all the, the workload and everything else. So they were looking at how much depression was really clear in top management. And, and there was not very much at all. So then they started going down the ranks. And only at the very bottom of the civil service was it really clear that depression and anxiety was super high because so many people are just doing these mundane jobs where they have no control, where they've basically been told what to do every day. You just... 
You're just following this pattern. And that's the same with your kids, right? And the kids at a certain age, my kids are teenagers, have very little control over what they're going to do. I mean, I'm going to go all over the place, but this is one of the major reasons we moved back from LA to Amsterdam, because in LA, you're forced to be in the car. So if my kids want to go somewhere, Dad, can you pick me up? Can you take me somewhere? In Amsterdam, they can just jump on their bike. The amount of control suddenly we've given them by just moving location and putting them in an environment where they can actually impact and influence the environment around them and what they're going to do is, is massive. And I, you know, I, th I think it's super important that we that, that you look at it from the point of view of you know, what, what can I do with this information I'm gathering? But most importantly, what can I do for my kids? Because um, there's a fantastic book called They Fuck You Up. You, you, and it really, I really do believe that it's, it's so obvious so, so often, but we, we just don't look at it deeply enough and look at ourselves and work out what sort of impact we have on our own children. Have you had similar revelations as a father as well, Mills? Uh, well, I've realised I'm a father. I hadn't realised that for 10 years. Um, <laughs> that's actually serious. No, it's not. That sounds really bad. Uh, yeah, yeah, I guess so. Probably, I just... Um, I mean, I really... I, I think I, I, I convinced myself that I was there um, a lot more than I was. And, it's, and I, I mean, the bottom line is I absolutely loved what I was doing. I was... I, I was in, a, in an industry that was thriving and, you know, I can think of nothing better than Lisa was willing to, to knew the deal. Um, coming back to, to what you said there, I think, I think some of the things that sort of I've really learned now, because I did pull out of one of your events last week, didn't I? Yeah, you what did, was yeah. For? Um, it was so I didn't. I was it would have been so boring. Um, <laughs> uh, I, told him, I told him he could sit next to Damien. He was he like, I'm that was nearly there. Nearly pulled me in. No, but I think to, to, the reason I did is because I was honest to him that I, th I think I've started to realise in the early days of growing up too, I would have been, at, you know, as the founder, everything, the parties. And, and you know, one of the reasons I stopped drinking is I recognised that I, me and my co-founder used sort of alcohol as a crux for, you know, a good 12, 13 years non-stop every single day. And, um, and that, that was no good anymore. I think I just thought that as the founder, as someone who loved or not knowing myself, I would be everywhere and do everything. And now I understand that if I'm doing an event like this tonight, then actually I'm not going to... I'm not going to spend the whole day in the studio talking to people because that was doing my head in. So I was actually in this like bunker basically at home that I've finally cre I've created. It's called the attic, by the way. It sounds better than it is. But so I think it's starting to know yourself. Someone talked about having like 12 spoons. That it could be any number, I guess. But like, understanding how many spoons it would take, or anything, or hedgehogs, uh, to um, in a day, how many are you going to use? Uh, so if you know you're coming to an event like this, that you're going to have to talk in front of people that you find hard to talk maybe, then maybe that's going to take six of them up. So then don't spend all the others before. Um, be aware of that. I think just becoming more aware of, of, of what I need. Like, I've never really heard ambivert. I mean, it's, it's not so... I love... I thrive on being with people, but at the same time, I love at the moment, especially when I take this medication because it's fucking next level. I just stay at home on Mondays and Fridays. I'm just like... I just look at the screen. It's like reading things. I've never read anything for, like, 10 years. It's amazing. Yeah, I'd, I'd never heard the term ambivert until you no. told me about it, and then I was researching, and I realised I actually am one because I do the extremes. I, I actually love being alone, relaxed. Well, not alone, with my cats and my wife. <laughs> wherever you are in the audience. Um, there she is. Hi. Um, but the cats as well. I will, can I say one, one thing? Um, I, talk, uh, I think there's a, a somehow getting to this. Um, there's not. One thing I noticed as well is that I think, you know, I was, pr I was probably part of the reason, you know, we had sort of attained certain success that I think it was a metric that I was sort of happy with. But then also, it, I think, if anything, it became... I realised there was a lot of work to do, and I think um, one of those was, unfortunately, was probably to 
to, to move people on that were friends of mine, that were close to me, that were no longer right for the business, but they were, of course, your, your very close friends. And I think it's very, again, back to that, it's easy to be a yes leader. You know, I think, unfortunately, if you keep people in the business that aren't really meant to be there and they kind of know it, that become, it becomes harder and harder. And I'm not just sort of saying that these, the to toxic people around you is the worst thing. And I've, I've noticed now that one of the reasons I feel exceptionally good about us now, and it's probably in the last three or four months, is that we built a completely new leadership team in many ways, um, including sort of chairman and non-execs that, that are just so, uh, have so much integrity and that I, although I didn't need to be around them because we set it up in a way that doesn't need me and things, you know, I want to be around them. And I think when you surround yourselves with good people, whether that be friends, whether that be colleagues, you know, if you're in a position that you can do that, then don't underestimate how bad, like, sort of negative people are around you. I think that's such a great point because, obviously, you know, the social connection and the you are, you are the sum of the however many people around you. I think it says it's like seven. But, you know, the, the reality is um, we all sort of know that stuff about our friends. And if you think about it, your friendships are the ones that you, you think in your mind are the people that you spend all your time with, but it's not true. You spend, if you're an entrepreneur or you're in a business, you spend all the time that you actually have with the other people in that room around you. And so... Uh, taking that insight and turning it into like a, a business philosophy for better mental health is actually a really uh, insightful thing to do. Have you, have you found that's an opportunity at all for you, Damien? I mean, this was just a super difficult thing to do, though, right? I mean, you have to be very particular about that kind of decision. I don't know that it has to be necessarily in your work. I think, um, Yo I mean, another, <clears throat> another sort of turning point is a guy called Johan Hari who wrote this book, Lost Connections. I don't know if you've read it, but if, it's a, one of the best books, I think, on, on depression, but also around anxiety, around the role of technology, around the role of addiction. <clears throat> Sorry. And he writes very eloquently that um, the opposite of addiction is community. You know, heroin isn't, isn't the root of all evil. Um, there are so many other factors around it, and you know this story of rats in cages being fed coke and, and water. You know, it is really down to... Um, the people you surround yourself and I don't think it has to be necessary in the workplace so I'm going to stick a bit of a feather up Dan's ass. but um, I think what you do with Secret Leaders like this is quite, it's quite nice I mean I had the, the event you didn't turn up to Mills was amazing Rude. Um, but I sat next to a couple who uh, you know I'd never met and it was sort of 15 people at a dinner um, and you could, it could have been a work conversation we could have all been bragging about you know, what we're doing and all the rest of it but actually, I was, I was bitching um, to the neighbour on my left and right about how shit mother-in-laws were, and we were comparing shitty mother-in-law emails and, uh, <laughs> and trying to have a sort of bitch off as to who had the worst experience with their mother or mother-in-law, which was a really good evening. I'm actually, I very much enjoyed it. <laughs> <laughs> so that like was a conversation starter, you know. It's the perfect one to start yeah, with. Yeah, like two hours of free therapy, but it's quite a nice little community that I think you've created, and it doesn't necessarily have to be in in the workplace, I think. So it's, it's just people, people you can reach out to. And again, being British, it's often quite hard to say, you know what, I'm struggling with this. Or, you know, this, I'd just like to have a chat. And certainly as guys, you know, pretty useless at doing that sort of thing. And it, my dad would say to me, I wrote, I wrote a piece on Medium um, about going to a, a boarding school in England. And I was a day pupil in a boarding school. And I wrote, I wrote this piece. And um, if, any, if any of you have seen the History Boys, it was sort of a History Boy thing, you know, that my history teacher basically, you know, fancied my best friend and the head of religious studies, you know, had an affair with a 13-year-old and got kicked out of school and uh, someone else was caught groping someone else. And it's a very British sort of public school story, which <laughs> my parents were like, oh, 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 you know, that sort of feels quite funny, isn't it? And you think, no, not really. I mean, the kids are getting fucking raped. How, can this, how come we're laughing about this? Is this, this is some sort of, you know, yeah. topic of just humour? Um, 
But in Britain, it's sort of it's sort of just swept under the carpet. We're just going to sweep that under as if you know oh, that's just you know sort of part of the deal, and that's how we that's how we work with things. Yeah. Well, that brings me nicely on to our next question. <laughs> sort of. It's not the world's best setup, I'll be honest. Um, but I'll, I'll make do with what you've given me. Um, which is, as, uh, I guess, entrepreneurs, leaders, just general human beings, um, what do you think we can actually do to improve some of those numbers that I shared at the beginning? You know, there's over 500 million entrepreneurs in the world uh, contributing to about 40% of uh, global jobs one way or another. So there's a huge impact on society, but... Um, exponentially more mental health problems in general um, than, you know, your average person, I guess. Um, well, I won't answer that because I've thought something else I've got to say first, but I will come back to that. Do that. Um, <laughs> I just remember being like, I think one of the things that probably, maybe it's a founder thing, I don't know, like you, I, I think I probably grew up thinking that I was far more important than I was and that mm. the world revolved around me. Obviously, my world kind of does, but... Um, I think I believed that other people were kind of desperate for me to do certain things. So I started, I think, on sort of part of this journey of, like, sorting myself out through running and through therapy and all these things, trying to try to work things out step by step. I started just talking absolute shit on, a, on, a, on my, my own podcast. It's not anything like the, uh, the power of this thing, but it was... I found that, you know, it's very simple just to record directly onto the phone with no um, expensive setup. And just talk very openly about my own struggles per day, like, as in, like, a journal. I wasn't ever a writer, so... I found that the medium of just talking shit was, was something really helpful. And I think over it, I've done it for literally, well, not literally, actually, uh, for like 400 days in a row now where I just talk very openly about anything I'm going through, including lots of people that I probably don't know I talk about them. And I think what I was actually doing was just kind of realising that the more, I, no matter what I talked about, no-one actually gives a shit. Like, you know, I think, oh, I better not mention that because the whole world would go crazy. And, like, no, I mean, A, no-one's listened to it. That's one of the reasons. But, but actually, as a consequence of that, I joke that no-one listens, but actually what I found is that I found an audience of people who were going through exactly what I was going through. And actually, by them reaching out to me and telling me that my story resonated with them, no matter what they'd done, it started to make me realise that no matter who they were or what they've achieved... Many of us go through very similar things. And for me, I created what at least my wife calls digi-friends, which are apparently not actual friends because you've never met them. But I speak to them more than not my wife, but most of my friends. So now I have this kind of, like, community of people that I've never actually met that I speak to uh, pretty much every night when I feel down or when they feel down. And for me, that's just given me a, a, a real boost. Like knowing, knowing that yeah, because you've, you've basically touched on the idea of uh, helping others helps yourself. Yeah, exactly. I mean, and uh, so I, I realised that one of my... That something that makes me feel good is about helping other people, and one of them could be just talking very openly about things that um, that most people think is not the right thing to talk about. Amen. Well, so I realised that I friends? might have ADHD as well because I didn't finish my story, so I wrote this medium piece. <laughs> <laughs> Mate, I'll give you the pills off. Yeah, yeah, maybe <laughs> yeah. four quid each, though. <laughs> Hopefully, you won't charge as much. No, no. no. <laughs> Anyway, it was like Fox and the Hedgehog. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and I wrote about um, boarding school, and, and I said, I just made this joke that, you know, I went to this traditional boarding school, and my parents flipped that I was airing my laundry in public, that I was putting this topic out there, and that I was putting them in a bad light because I was implying that they were totally cognizant and uh, aware of everything that was happening, and that they were complicit in putting me in an environment that was basically unsafe. It's true, they did. <laughs> but I know, you know, my parents are no way malicious, and I don't think they had any idea really. And you know, everything is based is based around your, um, you know, your constant and what you understand as being reality. And that was my parents' reality. They came from nothing. Um, you know, they they tried to do the best. They put us in the best environment that they knew that they could. 
Um, and we all came out of it pretty well. You know, that, that for them was success, and suddenly I was making it look like it wasn't successful. And I wasn't at all. I was just trying to um, shed a light on something that I think um, you know, is often overlooked. Um, and I think you know, that's, that's just something that I need to do, because I think Mills is more advanced than me in terms of you know, being uh, public and aware of you know, what, you're suf- what you're suffering from or what you're experiencing. Perhaps it's not suffering. But that's something I think, you know, as as sort of Brits, as men, as people in business, whatever, I think it is about um, being prepared and willing to open up and just share, you know, what you're thinking. And that doesn't doesn't come naturally to me at all. You know, I'm very much from an environment where you keep a stiff upper lip and, you you know, you don't, boys don't cry, you just sort of get on with stuff. Um, And, you know, a big part of it still is not disappointing my parents. You know, I'm 42. I did the Russell Brand interview the other day, and Russell asked me, um, you know, how was things, where did you start off? And I said, oh, you know, I went to Oxford for a year, and it didn't go so well, and he, like, leapt on it and went, so what did you do, drugs? And I thought, shit, I can't say that. I'm on fucking Russell Brand show. <laughs> no, I didn't do that. I mean, Alcohol. if there's anywhere you can say that, Alcohol. it's on Russell Brand show. <laughs> yeah, but I thought my parents are going to listen to this. And then, you know, it's, it's like, OK, I've got to... When, when is the right time to open up? When, do you, when, do you, when is the right time? You know, how do we do this? How do you handle this correctly? How do you deal with it with your kids? How do you make sure your kid's not going to use it and go, oh, Dad, so you were on the Russell Brown show and you said you did loads of LSD. How do, I, you know, how do you manage that? that? <laughs> Lucky you didn't ask directly. <laughs> Thank God my mum's not here in the audience tonight, right, Mum? Anyway. Um, and you're not even Russell Brand, you made me say in front of her. Unbelievable. Um, Is your mum really here? Yeah, yeah. Mum, wave your hand. There we go. Exactly. She should be very proud. Loves hearing about the LSD trips. It's one of of her favourite conversations. Um, Anyway, um, so uh, for you personally, then, I say for Mills, it's more about helping other people and having these sort of experiences with, like, you know, his digital friends or digi friends. Sorry. Um, and for you, it's more about actually um, feeling comfortable to hold your parents to account on something, not necessarily directly and purposefully. It's not like you actually confronted them on purpose, but the opportunity to release something that was just there for it's, you. It's a journey, right? I think it's just a journey. So, you know, in the journey, it's uh, first of all, you know, you need to come to terms with things yourself. And then I think you've got to, you know, come to terms with what you're, what you're prepared to share and how you're going to deal with it. And, you know, maybe for some people, it isn't about going out and talking about it at all, but dealing with it in a completely different manner. You have to find... Know your own way of doing it. The thing, the thing that struck me is, um, you know, this friend of mine who committed suicide was really one of the most influential men in British business, certainly that I knew of, right? And he was up here for me, like, you know, one day I'm going to be as amazing as him. Um, and what struck me, and this is something that strikes me as well, being in, in technology, is um, that the rules around what you can and can't say in business are so predetermined that, you know, you're, you're not allowed to overstep this mark for fear of being cut down. You know, you can't, if you say the wrong thing, you'll be seen as being a weak leader or someone who's vulnerable or weak you know, or, you know, um, crazy, whatever it is, you know. So it's, I think there's a position that you have that, you know, Mills has in being, in running a company and being able to say, hey, it's okay. And I think it's not that I feel particularly comfortable about it, but I think, you know, I sort of owe it to myself, to my kids, you know, whatever else to say, you know, hey, it's, it's okay if... You know, if, if we say this, we talk about it publicly, maybe we can change a little something. I don't know what we can change, mm. but it's a lot easier to do it from the inside than it is from the outside. Yeah, 100%. I guess before we go to any audience questions, if anyone has any, um, a, final, uh, a final set of, I guess, um, tips, tricks, hacks you've tried in your life. I mean, Mills, you've tried every hack in the world. Um, 
some work, some don't, but yeah. it'd be good to get some of them out there because I think it's, it's interesting what, you know, different people try on this journey and some of them come in the, you know, in all sorts of surprises. So um, I oh. guess, yeah, take us through, um, other than your four pound pills, obviously. Yeah, they're good. They're weird, but they're good. Um, <laughs> I mean, honestly, I try a lot of things. I mean, like I say, like not, not drinking alcohol for a year and a half was was very important for me at the time. But equally, I, I decided eventually that that wasn't good, and, and now I've gone back to drinking a fair amount again. And I don't mean the day, by the way. But I think I understand the limits. I understand where I've been. I understand. So I think, you know, same with social media. I think I used to people freak out a lot about it. I think I've realised that I like I realised that Instagram and Twitter for me are about actually communicating with people. I, I don't use it. I mean, sometimes I'm talking about what we do, but really I'm trying to send signals out that I probably am trying to elicit uh, a communication, and I often get that. Um, if I post a weird random stories, I think people, my digi friends, tend to understand how I am, and for me that's really important. So I understand the different tools that are at my disposal now. Um, not going, I mean, of course, I can just not go. I have set up the business now to not necessarily need me around as much. Um, so, yeah, just, just I, it, I don't think, I, I don't think it's, there's a fix. I think I gave up on trying to fix um, th over the last few months because I still have days where I feel really, really, really down and the next day I feel really, really high and I think that's just part of it. I think now I just understand when I'm down, look, I'm in that. I have to, like, just do not do certain things. Don't, don't be too hard on myself. I, I, I think it's not a founder thing. It's just a human thing. Um, yeah, and just laughing, really. I just laugh about it and just, just talk about it with people. And share. He is great to find I mean, I like social sharing, media, by yeah, the way. My wife wouldn't share anything. <laughs> uh, Damien. So I think the tide is turning, right? I mean, the, I think if we, we wouldn't have been having this conversation, I think, 10 years ago. I don't think that we would have been... Um, in a situation where we'd be willing to have this conversation and companies and uh, individuals would, be that, would have been that interested. I think, you know, talking about LA being very open to this, they're also an exceptionally positive environment, right? So the minute you start saying, well, there's two topics I like talking about that everyone goes, oh, fucking hell, Damien. Regulation, it's a Debbie Downer. <laughs> and mental health, I mean, basically it's conversation killer. I can clear a fucking room in seconds. <laughs> but can I open up on those two, conversa those two conversations? But I think today it's different, right? You know, we... Um, I think people are much more willing to talk about it and, and understanding, and I think particularly because of the impact of social media, that um, it's super important that we are talking about it. Um, and again, when I talked about you know, the civil service and the lack of control, I think that is one of the biggest problems of our time in that we feel like we're not in control of social media, that you know, we have to be on Instagram, we have to be on Facebook, and we have to be on Twitter, and you've got to be posting. There are all the tips on you know, how much time you've got to post and how much time you've got to spend and what's going to get the best engagement rates it doesn't matter a shit, but if you believe it does, the feeling of that you're, you're out of control, I think, is one of the biggest drivers for self-harm, depression, suicide, and the fact that we have uh, somebody committing suicide every 40 seconds, I think, is very much down to the fact that we are tied and bound by social media, and feeling that the we, we cannot control it. It's all down to us. I think you know, we can very easily control it if everybody decided we would leave Facebook for a day, we would have you know, a huge impact on the business Facebook and force them to change. But you know, we, we are drawn by convenience. And um, you know, convenience is the, the sort of evil of our time, I think it is, um, and fueled completely by social media. Uh, okay, do we have any questions from the audience, please? One straight away, yes. 
thank you for a very honest and open sort of conversation. I think the events are always amazing. Every time I come, you always learn something great. But, um, you know, the more you spoke about certain topics, the more I started to think about, well, you know, if you look at, you know, there's, there's almost joy sometimes in misery, right? For me, there is certainly. When you look at sort of historically Picasso or Goya or even Adele, for God's sakes, you know, the, these albums, these pieces of art, this work wouldn't have come through had they not felt such a low. Um, I'm wondering, is it as bad as we think, number one? And B, do we think going forward by labeling it as such and saying, oh, you should be happy, you should be great and feeling great all the time. I think it's a bit annoying personally. And are we going to see a difference in the kind of work that comes through? You know, if you look at the US, it's a very optimistic sort of society, but it is a bit annoying. Where, <laughs> you know... We use that in a soundbite. <laughs> but I think the UK generally is a bit more pessimistic. I mean, this is why certain, you know, e-commerce does really well. We don't want to talk to people. Is it as bad as we think? So, I, I mean, uh, I'm very much looking forward to Adele's next album, right? I mean, we know that she's on an all-time low, so it's going to be amazing. <laughs> um, no, I mean, in the creative sector, it's very different, right? So, I mean, in the creative sector, um, Spike Jones asked Jim Carrey to stay in this state of tragedy before he made uh, Eternal Sunshine and the Spotless Mind because it was so low. He, was like, he knew he was going to extract the best from Jim Carrey that, that he'd ever seen. Um, it's different in business, though. I think, you know, the, the, the creative world and the, and the business world are two different beasts, and I think we're very accepting in the creative world, and I think it's super important. But what I think is really important, even in, in the creative world, um, is that before you get to the point where you're cutting your ear off, that, you know, you're, you're aware of what's happening and you've got people around you to, to, to help you. And I think um, uh, if you have those people, that community that understand you too, and that's why I think it's important that you talk about it, you can say... You know, hey, I'm in, that, I'm in that mood where I've got to go to my attic and I'm going to lock myself off from the world, leave me alone. And everyone goes, oh, yeah, it's cool. He needs a day, but tomorrow he'll be back. Then I think it's all good. If you don't have that community around you, then it's, then it's scary, right? Then I think you can become very vulnerable. And, and particularly with technology, I think, you know, I'm not, I'm not a huge fan of remote working. I think it's great that a company like, you know, WordPress can be one of the biggest companies in the world and be nearly all remote. But it does worry me that there are a lot of people sitting at home on their own without contact with other people doing work on their own in a silo. Um, because you, we do need people around us, right? You know, we do, we do need to interact with people. So I think it's, we, there is nothing wrong with having highs and lows, but I think it's super important that you, that you sort of understand it yourself and the, the people around you understand, you know, when you're in a high and low and when you need help and when you don't. Without that, then it, it becomes dangerous, I think. Awesome. Next question, had a couple of other hands up. So you both were talking about how you realized after that you were actually depressed and something was wrong. Do you now, in this day, do you feel like you notice when you're going again on a low? And do you uh, think that maybe in the future you might realize after again that you had different kind of depression or a different kind of place that you felt really low, but maybe a bit differently? And how do you kind of like react to that if you notice something is not right? Uh, I don't sure this is the answer, but I mean, I'm definitely aware now of the cues, uh, the things I need, I should be doing on a daily basis that would definitely make myself feel better. Like, I know if I don't drink all night and smoke low all night and then 
and I, that I won't feel as good in the morning. If I don't go running every day, then I'm not going to feel as good. If I don't take my medication, I won't feel as good. If I won't, you know, there's number, if I don't eat well, you're going to feel like shit. Pizza is great, but in the morning you feel like shit. So I think now I'm just much more aware that I'm, I'm more conscious of the decisions I make and how they're going to impact the next day. So when I wake up the next day and I do feel like really bad, I'm, I'm aware that some of that is to do with some of my own choices as opposed to just thinking, oh God, the world's ending. Um, I think, and, and that, in all honesty, for me, that's just become through three years of kind of like going through the process of trying as many things as I can to try to, to work things out. Um, but I don't, I don't expect now, to your point, to, to, to ever find like I'm eternally happy now because I actually do en I enjoy the feeling of low now, now, because I understand that that's my time to wallow and think of something uh, different. Um, but before, I was probably freaked out by it. Like, you know, why am I feeling like shit all the time? Well, I've got everything in, in theory. You know. I, I didn't have the support around me, but I, asked, I started asking more and more. And now I, now I feel confident that I've got what I need to, to get me through. I think just to answer the question as well, like the, um, I focus so much on um, prevention um, as a daily practice that instead of, because I, I, when, when I um, had insomnia, I had all the things I wanted. So I was really shocked because I wasn't having a particularly difficult month. In fact, I was having the exact opposite. I was consciously super happy and fulfilled. And if anyone asked me how I was, the answer, in truth, was like amazingly fulfilled and, and, and joyous, but I can't sleep. Um, and, you know, after going through the experience, you know, since then, you know, and including with anxiety, I've made a real deliberate effort to do some of the obvious things that we all hear about. But um, one of them, it, like, which is so simple, is just walking every day. So I've given up, you know, unless it's... But even today it rained and I walked um, to, and to work, which is in Soho, and then from Soho to here I walked... Um, it wasn't raining that much, but you know that I basically given up public transport unless I need to. And I'll be honest, like Soho to here isn't the nicest walk. But I try and go through a park on the way to work, or find some way to be in nature, even if it's for five minutes. And it's unbelievable the impact that actually has on my day. Um, a, I'm never late because you know how long it takes you to walk everywhere, which just means I'm not anxious, I'm not stressful, uh, stressed. And um, you know, it's it's a really simple thing um, to be in control of and. You know, I think with adding in new principles like that, you know, they all start stacking up. Um, yeah. I, do, I do think, like, just, I mean, I really don't like wearing trousers. So, I realized, like, five years ago, I realised, why would I actually wear trousers if I don't like them? Um, and, I, I, and I threw them all away, including all the, the non-black T-shirts, and I thought, I'm never going to waste my life thinking about trousers ever again. And little things like this, incremental things help. You don't have to do that. Getting rid of bad <laughs> friends. No, but getting rid of bad friends. Don't go to events you don't want to go to. Don't talk in front of people you don't want to talk like just just don't do the things that you feel society you maybe need to do and actually when you start talking about it, other people go fuck actually i can be myself as well and it's like oh god it, it you without a shadow of a doubt you can you can you can definitely get through it and you can manage it and we're all in the same you can boat. control it right i think that's your part of that's the control part yeah, find something that you can control when even if there's a lot of people say oh it's easy because you run the company so you can choose but i think even if you're an employee of a company you're you know working for a student body or something it's finding that little thing that you can control, that little sort of, you know, fuck you that you can do that, you know, only you can do, I think is really, is really important. I think that that actually is what I, I learned a lot about. Um, control is, I think, when I was searching for the 100 miles or going vegan or not eating any sugar, it was all a control thing. It was something while I was sort of trying to deal with other things. But ultimately, it's all, I didn't need to control those things. They're quite sort of basic stuff.
I don't know where I was going with that, but I realised the control thing is a key thing. I think yeah. if they're asked, if you if you're noticing going extreme with the diet or something, it probably means there's a sign that something's not right underneath, um, and you're using that as a sort of to navigate around it, around the problem. Okay, so last question, so no pressure, make it good. Um, this is to you as well, Dan, because I think you'd have some interesting insight on this. Um, you guys obviously talked about the importance of opening up to your co-founders and team. I'm curious to hear what you think about how open you should be to investors. And I want to caveat this with Mills. I don't know if you've raised investment or not. I think, Damien, you have, right? But as far as I understand, you guys were in a very, very strong position when you did. So I guess you were in a pretty good power position with your investors at that point so what would be your advice to entrepreneurs listening to this about how honest they should be with their investors so i think you should be as honest as you possibly can but in maybe it's very much depends on whether you already have investors or whether you're looking for investors so i think the fortuitous thing today is that there are a lot of investors out there that are very different to the investors that were around in 2010 so I think if you haven't taken investment or you're looking to talk to people right now, you can find people that actually understand this and can understand the metrics that lead to greater happiness in the workplace, to better retention. All the things that VCs find super important, they, you know, tick the boxes in terms of uh, you know, financial return, whatever else. I think that um, the conditions have changed slightly. If you already have investors in board, on board, it's slightly different. Right? Then I think, um, you know, yeah, we were profitable, so we... We had a, uh, an investment that came in that understood what we were trying to do and, and supported the fact that we gave away 30% of our revenue to support the arts. Um, you know, it's, it would be a lot harder. I don't know the answer if you already have investors on board, other than you know, try, to, try to make sure that they can see it as being good business. A lot of people don't join WeTransfer because they want to build the best file-sharing product, but a lot of people join because they want to be involved in a company that gives back. Um, you know, so it's finding the thing that I think... Um, you know, resonates, and it is a business at the end of the day. I don't believe in charity, so I think you know, even the most, um, you know, the best businesses should just be profit for good. And I think the idea that we should continually you know, fund a charity and put money into something that doesn't actually generate any income, I find difficult, and I find I think it's unsustainable. Um, yeah, I'll stop talking. You should, Mills. What do you think? Oh, thank you. Uh, no, I think my back hurting. Um, you're an investor uh, now, so obviously yeah. you're the type of uh, we've, investor so we've never taken. For. We've never taken money. I, I was very focused on not doing that. And I, but I was, I kept, I, 15 years ago, it was a different world to today. Um, we have invested a lot of companies. And um, would I want someone to... I mean, I'm not a like, prolific investor. It's a bit embarrassing to say that we are investors. But, um, yeah, look, I think you, if you trust them, I think you... I don't see what you stand to lose. I mean, the reality is if you're going through something that, is, that you feel warrants needing to talk to them, then you're only going to be in a better position if you are able to, to talk to them about help, them hopefully helping you get through something. If the intent is to get better, then you should talk to them. Um, definitely, you know, hopefully you haven't taken on investors that aren't human beings. At the end of the day, we're all humans. That's why I keep coming down to it. I mean, funny enough, when, I mean, more than not than more than anything, I think now, I think personally, when we make investments, I'm more going on gut feel of somebody rather than like the business model. That doesn't really interest me. And of the companies that I'm going through, some of the biggest issues we have now are mental health problems without a shadow of a doubt, and things I never could have guessed when we invested years ago. Um, so it's 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 a it's a big issue. But something, I mean, just to jump in, but something that uh, I I was doing a talk last week, and somebody asked me a similar question. Um, and I would say that they were not in the best place personally, period. So my response to them was just don't start a business. 
you know, I, I was really genuinely concerned that I think that they were, you know, mentally not in the right place to be actually thinking about starting a company. So, in, you know, as a sort of friend more than anything else, like just really go and get some help because I think at this moment the worst thing you can do is go and stick your neck out and go and do something that's going to be late nights and risk and, you know, stress and anxiety and all the rest of it. You know, if you can, go and get a job somewhere. Just cruise for a little bit. Go and study. I don't know what you need to do, but I wouldn't suggest starting a business um, because, I mean, no one wants to put money into something where there's, where there's obvious friction, right, or where there's, there are obvious early stage, uh, early signs of problems. So I think if it's, um, if it's really visible and you're, you know, really questioning it up front and you haven't taken an investment, I would say just pause because I think starting a company is, is super stressful. It's, you know, there's a lot of anxiety around it. I wouldn't, it's not for everybody and certainly not if you're not in that, you know, in that good headspace. Yeah, I think um, I would challenge Mills's statement that uh, all, like, all investors are human beings. Um, pretty sure there's a lot of entrepreneurs in the room that would probably agree with uh, my rebuttal to that. Some of them certainly act like they're definitely not human um, and have very little appreciation for... Um, the fact that you're having mental health problems, you're embarrassed. It's all fine. Like, things are going well, then your investors like you. And if it's not going well, so in my last company, when things weren't going well, they treated me, a, a small portion of them, like totally, and I stand by this, like a large portion of my investors were really awesome people. They're still my investors now. They back me. Um, but there's a small portion of them, I'd say 5%, um, acted like I'd done it on purpose, you know? And... Um, you know, I remember talking to definitely you, Evgeny, like where on, uh, you know, because it was what it was. I didn't realize this at the time. I just got a super aggressive, angry email about how from someone who was like the head, like president or vice president or something of like Credit Suisse. I mean, like, you know, just super senior, amazing money man. And he just like tore my character down for not doing well in an investor update. And I was like, fucking hell, it's so intense. Like, who talks to someone like that? And then I realized it was World Mental Health Day, and that was kind of funny. So that's when I emailed you, <laughs> being like, oh, this is kind of hilarious timing. Um, because you've got to see the funny side, and it was just an ironic day to do it. But it's just like, you know, it's, it's, I'm sure a lot of you guys and, and girls in the room will totally resonate with the way that people behave with you is when things aren't going well, it's like you've done it on purpose. To be you, um, but, that, but that, I mean, they're all humans, that's a fact, unless you... Well, yes, annoying, annoyingly, annoyingly, I can't actually but disagree they're, with they're that. A bit, they're, I don't two goats, as my investors say. <laughs> they might, but there are a lot of wankers out there, for sure. I mean, I think values is key. Don't just take money, clearly, yeah. from just, like, yeah. any, any jackass. I mean, there's, there's a lot of fugazis out there. You, I, I really think if you can take the time to find the sort of people that you actually want to... You know, they are a part of your team, really. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, and I think a lot of it comes down to experience and naivety. You know, taking any money from anyone is, is sometimes what you have to do yeah, as well when you no, learn throughout the period that that's not a sensible thing to do any more than it is to employ someone that you wouldn't get on with. Correct. You know, Balance, these are sensible yeah. decisions. Thank you very much for uh, coming, and especially thank you to our amazing guests this evening. Thank you, Dan. Next. Here at Mindset Win, we want to give you the tools to become better at what you do. Taking inspiration and wisdom from our guests, we will hear stories, strategies, tips and tricks. Told by leading names in sport and beyond. Who know what it takes to get to the very top. There will be two episodes each week packed with amazing stories and practical takeaways for us all to follow. Search for Mindset Win on YouTube and on your favorite podcast app. week on Secret Leaders.
my boundaries have never been stronger than they are today. It takes a long time and, and it takes consistency. And it, like you said, it's difficult to say no, but now they're just real strong. And to the point where sometimes I come off as rude to people and I have to be okay with it because I am trying to protect my mental stability, my soul, my physical health, which is all tied together. That was the brilliant Arlen Hamilton, the founder of Backstage Capital, who invests solely in underrepresented and overlooked founders and has become somewhat of a sensation in the investment scene since joining out of nowhere from a previous career in publishing and music with absolutely zero financial experience whatsoever. You're in for a treat, so tune in or you'll miss out. This episode was brought to you by me, Dan Murray-Serta. I encourage you to follow me on social at Dan Murray-Serta for all sorts of stories on mental health and entrepreneurship. But we've also got our social channels at Secret Leaders back up and running now too. So go follow us there, particularly our brand new YouTube channel, where you'll be able to see interviews just like today's on video. If you enjoyed today's episode, screenshot and tag us to share the episode or tweet us. It means a lot. And if you really loved it, why not review us please too? It only takes a second. This episode was produced by Rich Martel, with editing done by Harry and Daniel at Lower Street Media, artwork by Christina Naru, and marketing support from Charlotte and Alicia at Mags Creative, and bringing it all together seamlessly, our newest team member, Will Stolliman, as the head of podcast. Thanks for the great teamwork, guys, and see you next week.